I'll add my welcome to the welcomes already. Uh, my name is Rod. For anyone that's new, um, one of the people that work for this place. And um, it has fallen to me to speak today. So that's what I'm going to do. I might ask you to do some speaking too. But let's, um, let's start with some prayer. Why not? Well, there's lots of reasons why not, but let's pray anyway. Loving God, thank you for this community. Thank you for um, all the gifts that people are to each other in this place, um, for the, the gift of, of music, um, gift of giving notices, gift of sound, amazing gift. Um, and thanks for Alan for uh, helping out today on sound. Mm. Thank you for Libby for setting up for us. Um, and um, I guess as, as Anita said, um, sometimes all the things that happen from 9 o'clock here are invisible to, to many of us, but uh, I want to thank you for all the people that are willing to occasionally get up early to do stuff. And I pray this morning as we um, think about our community and we think about the idea of um, sharing the load, how we share the load of community, um, that this might be a morning where we don't just feel guilt or feel bad, but that we um, are able to openly engage with the shared challenge of being community together. Amen. Oh, yeah, I should have given a spoiler alert before that prayer. Um, yeah, so we're going to be talking a little bit about community, the vision that we have for community in this place. Uh, it's part of a series that we're doing. Um, we, we recognized that as a community, we do a lot of series that are um, quite exciting and transformative for us at the time and then promptly forget about them. And so it might be a good idea to work out ways of keeping those things, keeping those memories, keeping those insights alive for us. Um, so one of the ways that we're doing that is, is to um, revisit some of the series that we've done in the past, and we're going to do that um, today, but also to try to create some, um, some resources that we can use as a way of reminding ourselves as little triggers for the different things that we've looked at in um, over the last few years. So one, one thing that we tried to do was um, to, to create a, a prayer that somehow triggers or connects with a lot of the themes that we've um, looked at over the last number of years. So this is a, a work in progress. I'll just read it for us now. Um, and then we'll talk about which of these things we're looking at today. Uh, so, loving God, we look for the coming of your upside-down kingdom. Please make a way for your kingdom to come today and open our eyes to see it. Help us to see and honour all those who are so often unseen and dishonoured. We look for your justice and love in our world. Help us to see what your work of justice and love looks like for us here today. Call us to doubt 
so that faith may take new forms. Make us a well of life-giving water, not a walled city. Make us a beloved community who carry each other's burdens. Help us to be custodians of this place like those who came before us. And may we always honour its original custodian. And please unify us without bruising the beauty of our diversity. Amen. So we've been <clears throat> looking at a few of these themes, um, themes in this prayer over the last, um, well, it's, it's a few months because we had a Beatitude series in the middle. Um, we looked at the idea of seeing those who are unseen. Um, we've looked at doubt. And um, today we're going to look at the section on community. Um, this is an, another one that, that Tilly and I wrote together as a kind of more kids accessible version of the same thing. So we'll, we'll come back to this as well. Um, but I guess the more accessible version of that prayer that we're looking at today is we want to be a church that makes everyone feel loved and important and we want to be a church that helps people when they need help. Um, the other resource that we have um, in, in this community is um, Shaping Stories. We Years ago, we decided we didn't really want a mission statement, but we wanted um, to try to illustrate the values that shaped this community through stories rather than just statements. Um, but we recognised as part of this series, that a lot of people are not familiar with those shaping stories. Uh, so if you're not familiar with them, they're all there's a link on the website that you can look at and see those shaping stories. And they all kind of illustrate um, a value. Um, and two that we want to look at today is um, the idea of, of us, because it also connects to community and our vision of community, is um, taking responsibility for our experience here. A lot of churches really infantilize the community. Um, so the leaders are the grown-ups, the parents, and everyone else are kids. And um, like, like kids, um, the parents are constantly trying to work out what the kids might need and trying to fulfill all of these unspoken expectations and desires um, while the kids kind of they're bored and resentful waiting for their parents to do something to entertain them or to make their experience richer. Um, and so it's just something that we, we really wanted to resist in this community, that kind of, of split. Um, because it creates two forms of resentment. Um, it creates the resentment of the disempowered community waiting to be asked what they need, waiting to be engaged waiting to be seen. But on the flip side, it, it creates a different form of resentment from um, the pastors or the board or those that are kind of really more involved in the day-to-day -day running of the place, um, that they feel bitter and resentful because of the weight that they feel like they're carrying, the weight of expectation even though a lot of the expectations that they carry are things that they've projected onto the community rather than things that are actually out there. Um, so that's what we're looking at today. 
Um, I'll give you a minute to just have a look at this one. So this is, the, we'll just quickly look at the two shaping stories, have a little read. I'm not going to read the whole thing out. Um, sorry, people listening to the podcast. But I'll give you a chance to have a little read of it and I'll, um, I'll give a little pricey to the people playing at home. Yeah. This first one, taking responsibility for our experience, essentially it's just what I said. But often in community staff get burnt out trying to meet all these needs um, and all these things that are done, like the things that happened before nine o'clock, uh, before 10.15 are invisible to people. Um, and so we get into this cycle of resentment where leaders are resentful for all the things that they do that are unacknowledged and the community is resentful because they, I guess, often have no idea what's actually taking place. Um, and the other one that relates to this, I'm hoping that you're almost done. Again, as I say, they're on the website, so if, if you haven't finished, have a little look, or if your eyesight's not so good. <laughs> have a look on the website. Um, and the second one that's informing what we're talking about today is is this idea of the um, of the unbusy pastor. So one of the reasons that um, Shane and I a few years ago thought we would never do this job again um, was because of the incredible unhealthiness that we saw in so many of the, the pastors that we've worked with and worked for in the past um, and the cult of busyness that we see in, uh, obviously it's not, it's not just in churches, it's Busyness is an epidemic in our culture, and um, that's what we're going to really touch on today. Um, but seeing this busyness and seeing the effects of this busyness in the people that we worked for and with um, made us think that if we were ever to do this job again, and hey, look, we are, um, we would desperately want to fight to do it differently um, and to try to model a form of leadership, being a pastor that was not characterised by busyness. And the series, I guess the series that um, we felt really connected to this, these two um, shaping stories was a series that we did, I think a couple of years ago, called Bricks and Bread. Anyone remember the series Bricks and Bread? What do you remember about it? I'm a bit tired of my own voice. What do you remember about the series Bricks and Bread for those that were here? Not a test. <laughs> remember anything? Remember what the bricks were and what the bread was? Who made the bricks? You see, simple questions. Who made the bricks? Anyone? <laughs> 
That was the Yeah, so we're looking at the Lord's Prayer and looking at the idea of give us today our daily bread. And um, we took it back to the, the story of the Exodus and the story of the manna in the wilderness, so the bread that God provided to Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. So that was the bread part. Um, and the bricks part, anyone remember anything about the bricks? Good that we're doing this series. You guys few. Yeah, so I just remember the words Mitzrayim and Manuha, which are, I guess they were reflecting busyness and work and versus an attitude of rest and productivity without that kind of endless machine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so the two words that we, we kept coming back to were Mitzrayim and Manuha. And Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Um, and Manuha is the Hebrew word for rest. Um, so it, you first see it in, in Genesis 1, uh, on the final day, God rests. And so that, that word Manuha is this very rich notion of rest. Um, and in the wilderness in Deuteronomy, the, the land of Canaan is also referred to with this word manuha this is the land where you can you can rest um so i'm going to get just going to have a look at um a couple of passages now since Stu, you were talking you can go on with this one um so this this is really a great passage to illustrate um the bricks part of the bricks and bread series this is exodus 5 1 to 9 moses and aaron went to pharaoh and said These are the words of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is this God of yours, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know this God, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Yahweh, for we will be confronted with plagues or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working? That same day, Pharaoh commanded the slave drivers of the people and the overseers, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves but you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. Very appropriate passage, considering how slow wages are growing in this country. Um, But... Yeah, this is, this is where the idea of bricks comes from, um, that the work of Israel as slaves in Egypt was making bricks. And the emerging pattern was um, greater and greater demand for productivity and no space for rest. Um, 
And this is what Mitzrayim, Egypt, came to symbolize for Israel, um, a place of constant, unending labor, labor that never, never ceased and demands that could never be fulfilled. Um, and then a second passage, which I'll get Atish to read, um, I guess represents the manuha part, the bread part, the rest part. You shall not oppress the foreigner. You know the heart of a foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive For six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have relief, and your slaves and the foreign workers who do your work may be refreshed. Be attentive to all that I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall hold a festival for me. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. So the great thing about this passage is that it illustrates quite a few of the characteristics of manuha, of rest, of God's rest that we talked about. Um, in the series, we see um, the idea of taking taking care of the poor, taking care of foreigners, um, taking care of the land, and taking care of the animals. So there's that that incredibly inclusive sense of rest um, that everyone and everything deserves a time of rest. Um, and that within that time of rest, there is the opportunity for those who often cannot eat to eat, um, for those who are often not provided for to be provided for. But we also see in this passage the, the command um, to not serve other gods, and it's often seen in this very narrow sense of, oh, you have to be faithful to God and not, you know, not follow any other gods. Um, but the God, the, what's important here is who are the gods that are being referred to? Um, Israel has been in Egypt for generations. And so which gods, which other gods do they know? The other gods that they know are the gods of Egypt. And what do these gods command? They, they command for slaves and for poor people. They command endless work. And so when God says, be faithful to me and not faithful to other gods, What's being referred to is these gods of Egypt, these gods whose expectations of people is endless and unrelenting work. That's what idolatry is. It's not just religious pluralism. It's giving up a god of rest for a god of relentless work. And we also see here the command for festivals. Um, and festivals are are wonderful because festivals are fundamentally unproductive. 
Festivals produce no bricks, produce nothing that can be sold. They consume excess. They consume what you have made in an act of joy and celebration. There's nothing less productive than joy and celebration. And yet this is exactly what the God of rest commands. And we see that in the previous passage too. God is saying to Pharaoh, let my people go and do something unproductive in the wilderness, a time of festival and celebration. And Pharaoh says, no, there is no space for unproductive celebration in this economy. There is only space for unrelenting work. So this was our like summary slide from the whole series. Um, summarizing the characteristics of Mitzrayim, of Egypt, of the brick-making economy. And summarizing the characteristics of Manuha, of the economy of rest. So this is basically what we spent months talking about. Um, For those at home, I'll just quickly read them out. Characteristics of Mitzrayim. Achievement becomes master. Dependence is weakness. Dependence on God is weakness. Stance of restless discontent. What we produce defines us. Rest is anxiety-inducing. We live in an economics of scarcity. So if you have stuff, that means I have less. So we have to fight for stuff. Expansion at all costs and endless work. Um, whereas on the other hand, with Manuha, we see the goal is to be deeply human. Dependence on God is actually a gift, not a weakness. Our fundamental stance towards reality is gratitude. Seeing God as the source of life, seeing rest as a gift, a life-giving gift, living an economics of God's generosity and having the capacity to say that I have enough and I have done enough. And this slide really sums up and informs the vision that we have for this community and the vision that we have for us as pastors. I think someone's locked out. Someone want to think they've rested enough out there. I found, um, as I was researching for today, I found Shane, Shane's notes from a talk that he gave in this series on, um, on our vision for who we want to be as pastors. Um, and he talked about all the heartbreaking stories he had heard from, from pastors and the people who worked for them about um, pastors who sacrificed their own families for, um, for their job. Um, who found that there was absolutely no end to the work that they had to do, who completely lost the passion that had made them want to do the job in the first place. Pastors who had absolutely no time for prayer, no time for connection, no time for contemplation, who felt like they were part of a machine. Pastors whose world shrank to the bubble of church. 
Um, there was no space for anything outside of it, no space for any relationships outside of it. Um, I remember in the talk, Shane joked about pastors, when pastors talk about evangelism or they talk about stories with people, conversations with people outside of the church, they always take place on a plane. So they're always on a plane flying somewhere because it's the only time that most pastors talk to someone that's not part of their church community. It's when they're sitting next to them on a plane. And they feel this incredible pressure to somehow evangelize them or engage with the person next to them. Otherwise, they've lost an opportunity to do work. Um, and so, yeah, all their illustrations of my conversations with non-Christians um, take place on planes when they're flying to a conference where they get to talk to other Christians about how hard they work. Um, pastors who start off trying to build a community and end up just being small-time CEOs with no friends. Um, it really does seem like a job that only a sadist or a martyr or a narcissist would want to do. Um, and that is so often the case. But foolish idealists that we are, we thought maybe, maybe, maybe there's another way um, of doing this work um, and another way of inviting the community to be part of community. Um, the person that really shaped our vision was um, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Actually stayed in his house in Montana once. Yeah, how about that? Nice place to swim. But he... He, in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, uh, coined the phrase, the unbusy pastor, um, to express this hope for a different way of doing, um, of fulfilling this role. I keep wanting to say doing this job, fulfilling this role. <laughs> in it, he says this, um, quoting the busy pastor, I am busy because I am vain. I want to appear important, significant. What better way than to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, and the heavy demands on my time are proof to myself and to all who will notice that I am important. The vision of the unbusy pastor is not about promoting laziness or a resistance to hard work, but it is resisting Mitzrayim. It's resisting working out of fear, insecurity, pride, vanity, and greed. Because this, this is idolatry. This is what God is calling Israel out of. And this is what God calls us out of. This kind of idolatry. To fear, insecurity, pride, vanity, and greed. It's a sign that we don't really trust God to be the source of life for a community. It's all on us. But even though hard work is part of manuha, and sometimes that work is demanding and difficult, it's very different from busyness because there are limits. 
There is such a thing as too much. And there is an important act of discernment between activities that bring life and activities that are just for the sake of doing more. Manuha is a rhythm of life that seeks the deeper rather than just more. Building depth, building engagement, relationship and vulnerability. So we want to get away in this community from a narrative of resentment that we start, that I talked about at the beginning, um, this kind of mutual resentment between um, pastors and community. Get away from this narrative of neglecting family, um, becoming the isolated guru, the one who has all the answers but has no true friends. One who has a thousand relationships, one each, one inch deep. One that's always on. Surprises this notion of excellence, but doesn't actually know what it's for. All of these qualities, and we have to start saying um, enough of this as a community to open us up to something else. We need to make room for unproductive activities, as we said before, things like prayer, things like reflection, things like contemplation, celebration. We need to make space for fewer but deeper relationships, richer relationships. One of my favorite writers, um, the Jewish philosopher and theologian Martin Buber, says that the most important leaders in the world are the leaders who know the faces of each person that they lead. We need time for reflection and education. We need time to engage with life outside the bubble of church. One of the reasons why we work part-time is so that we don't become so consumed by this community that we lose all perspective. And also that we lose touch with your reality. Um, there's nothing worse than pastors for whom this community is, is everything. And so pastors who become incredibly frustrated with their community because it's not everything for you people. Of course it's not. That would be crazy. That would be disturbing if this was the limit of your world. And yet it does become the limit of the world of so many pastors, their community, um, and an incredible source of resentment because if it's all that you ever think about and you come to church and all the important things that people were supposed to remember, everyone's forgotten. Um, it's a recipe for kind of pointless exasperation. So the, I guess the question I want us to, to reflect on as we finish is um, how do we build Manuha into our practice as a community? Because it's not just about the, the vision that we have, but it's, it's a kind of a vision for us as a community. Um, that's a genuine question, so I'll get your, your thoughts in a minute. But as you're thinking, um, I'll just share a couple of things. Um, obviously, for us as pastors, one of the things, as I said, is that we 
need to work very hard to maintain space for prayer and reflection, contemplation, conversation, vulnerability, relationships of, of depth. Um, but we also need, um, and this is why I'm going to invite you in a second to share your reflections, we also need many voices. Um, if as a community, if as leaders you feel like yours is the only or the most important voice um, and that if you don't think of everything that needs to be said about a, a subject, then, then you've failed, um, that's a recipe for madness as a pastor and a recipe for frustration as a community. Obviously, we need to remember that we're a body uh, and that in a body there are many different gifts um, and that while leadership is an important gift, it's just one. Uh, and there are incredibly important thing for pastors is to remember that there are so many parts of the body that you are not. Uh, there are so many gifts that people have that you don't have. Um, and to, to make sure that you don't place yourself at the centre. And it's just a cultivation of an incredible act of, incredible sense of trust, I guess, of um, for me particularly as a pleaser. I'm a, a very intense people pleaser and the idea of letting people down or there pe being people in the community who are disappointed in me is just almost overwhelming. So that creates incredible internal pressure to, to anticipate things that people might be expecting of me. Um, but the effect is, is a form of madness because of what it does to you psychologically, trying to anticipate the needs of a community, each individual person. But it's also, um, as we said at the beginning, a real act of infantilizing of your community um, because you're not trusting them to take responsibility for their own experience and to ask for the things that they need. Um, and to let you know when you've said something that's hurt them, to let you know when you've disappointed them, and hopefully to do it in a gracious way that doesn't crush you, but that actually just alerts you to mistakes that you've made or for things that you've neglected. Um, so I know I've talked a lot about the kind of the pastor side of this equation, but it, it's a it's a reciprocal thing. And the more that we are all able um, to take responsibility for our experience, to be gracious, to be vulnerable, to be trusting, the easier it is for all of us to fulfill that role. One of the things that Shane didn't talk about in his talk, and I'll just finish with this and then see if you have any reflections. One of the things that Shane didn't talk about is that I think often pastors take on too much of the load of the future. Um, we often talk about what's happening now and the way we're functioning now. But I think um, often pastors feel this incredible weight of responsibility for the future survival of their community uh, and that somehow um, they have to give the impression to their community that they're always going to be here. Um, but that is never something that you can guarantee. Um, there's a great Tibetan mantra that says that the only sure thing in life is death. Um, but one thing that is not certain is when death will arrive. So live in the light of those two facts. So any 
anyone here may not be here tomorrow. And if we live as if that's not the case, it's very dangerous. Um, I have two children, um, and you'll notice there aren't that many children here. And there's a very real chance that in the next couple of years, this place will become a place that my kids don't want to come to anymore because there's not enough here for them. And I need to listen to that. My, my first responsibility is to them and not to you. <laughs> and if it comes to the point of me having to choose them or you, I'm going to choose them. And you need to know that. And I think God is doing an incredibly beautiful thing here, an incredibly good thing here. But it's no particular person's responsibility to make sure that that continues. Um, and part of us as pastors experiencing enough freedom to do this job with joy is to trust that everyone knows that we might not be here next year or the year after for any number of, of reasons. Um, and that people live their experience in this community in the light of that um, and aren't just assuming that if they go overseas for a year and come back, it'll, everything will just be here because there are these people whose job it is to make sure this thing never dies. Okay, that's enough for me. Um, any thoughts about, um, as I said, I've talked a lot about the pastor perspective, but any thoughts on, as a community, um, what are some practices, what are some habits that we can cultivate to try to stay on the Manuha vision rather than the Mitzrayim vision theme? This is giving me like flashbacks to my old Pentecostal days, but it was a, probably a good practice that they had a section of every service where they opened um, like th thankfulness. So they would just give time in the service to reflect on what you're grateful for. But I think the change would be that here we could honor, we could, we could allow people to honor what is difficult, not just what we think is idealistic or blessings. Um, yeah, so we could reflect on things that are hard and things that are easy, things that are messy, and we could be great. Find a way together to be grateful, and not just in the community we have we have here, but also in the wider space of our lives. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we talked about, maybe even last week, was yeah that space to um, to be joyful with each other in in our joy, and also that space to lament with each other. I mean, lament, I think about a third of the psalms are psalms of lament, and yet lament is something that just does not take place in most churches. Um, and so, yeah, space for gratitude, space for celebration, and space for lament, and being able to, when we are in a bad place, still celebrate with each other, and when we're in a good place, still lament with each other is an incredible gift each other. Um, I've, I've been thinking about the idea of the upside-down kingdom in you know, a really good way, and that way then we don't respect um, sort of other institutions where you have like all the powers tend to flip off and it flips down. I suppose if we sort of work with those invisible populations that tend to experience stigma and discrimination and flip it around where they have more power, and in that sense then the role of the those people who have the power 
not going to have that much of an impact. And then that sort of frees up the role of this class to sort of assume some of that cost base for the first year. But do expand the visibility um, to have that more power to take their power into that shadow impact and to start to make that change. And then this effect just replicates that. It becomes even more profound. And then you see that sort of in the, in the Ministry of Christ, which is always challenging people that are in business to sort of think about that. I think one of the dangers of, of the whole notion of leadership as a gift is that it, if, it, if you see it as an either-or, so if you have the gift, then you have that role, and um, if you don't have that role, you don't have the gift. That's quite dangerous, whereas if you see it as both and, some people have a particular gift of leadership, and we name that um, to keep them accountable. <laughs> um, but we also recognise that all of us have leadership gifts in all sorts of, of contexts, and that, yeah, so it might be a particular focus for some people to create that sense of a safe space, but that it's also a focus for all of us to the extent that we are able to make this a safe place for those that feel unseen or for those that are on the margins. Um, I think that one thing that we're already doing as a church that I love definitely feeds into this rest thing is breakfast church and that it gives you guys a rest, <laughs> but then it also gives everyone who like volunteers here a rest, but and then it puts, um, I don't know, it puts focus on, on us to, um, yeah, to, to be with each other and to like keep, keep it going kind of thing, keep something going. And also be delightfully unproductive. <laughs> I mean, one of the most, one of the fantastic paradoxes of resting is that, you know, it, it's usually more productive. <laughs> so if you think of letting land lie fallow for a year. Um, it's a way of preserving the productivity of the land. And if you plant, keep planting every year, eventually you destroy the soil and you can produce nothing. Um, and um, I often think more community formation happens on a breakfast church Sunday than any other Sunday. And for, for pastors, out of a sense of self-importance, to feel like I need to be speaking every week to kind of keep this thing together just such a false economy. Um, you flog yourself to death doing something that's actually less productive than resting. Yeah. It's more of a question. And um, when, when you and Shane sort of prepare your series or do your midterm sermons, um, do you, other than each other, do you have a sounding board or just the, um, not me, the leading committee, you know, do, do you... Yeah, board, yeah, sorry. Um, do you sort of bounce ideas around to talk about? Because you were talking about getting the sense of what the community is and, and directing your thoughts towards, you know, meeting the needs of the community. Do you, do you come up with some, you know, sort of brainstorming ideas or ha how does it actually formulate? Good idea to um, have kind of more representative people to bounce things off. I guess in, in some ways that's the role. So for those that are new, we have a group called co-creators that are like you know, members. We have a camp every year and we have meetings. And usually on the camp, the focus rather than giving people information is getting 
feedback and looking at different issues in the community. So often that's what might inform the priorities that we create for the coming year to say people seem to be really concerned about this issue from those groups. So um, that's often a way that it happens. But it, yeah, it's a good idea to sort of have that also as a more constant ongoing feedback. I'll pass this to Dickie because he'll probably have like a slightly warped perspective <laughs> on this topic. But um, I think, yeah, it meant I just had really unrealistic expectations of what was normal to like looking at work full time and like the people I worked out at quite a young age <laughs> um, due to a lot of other reasons as well, I think. But um, yeah, I think it's also uh, really healthy to give us understanding of the workspace. I remember we always like had to like go on whole like holidays because we haven't kind of had it because we ever had time or like that didn't go away because if we were like too nearby we lived a block distance from the mess no rest um, and so I really value the sort of like sit um, space for people to sit if they can't give it to us if they can't give it to us because that's like um, a really beautiful privilege and also for us to be able to kind of be sort of always representing you know the whole family not the pastor I don't know. I've been at places where um, I've had to kind of like go to because I just look after the kids and like they don't want to have to do this work. Wouldn't that have had to be like, can you photocopy that? Um, I remember the photocopy about being like a little bit <laughs> um, which is fine. But yeah, I think that's just a really And I guess that's, um, yeah, I mean, a big challenge for us is that um, if you look at Israel, they left Mitzrayim, they left that kind of unrelenting labor. And a lot of us have been in churches that were a lot like Egypt. Um, and then we were um, delivered from those churches into the wilderness. And all of us, well, many of us, not all of us, I don't want to overgeneralize, but many of us spent quite a bit of time in the wilderness after having left those kinds of churches. Um, and the wilderness is clearly an important part of the process. You need, it's like going cold turkey from Egypt. You need to go cold turkey from it for a while. You need to have that wilderness experience of complete brokenness and dependence where the only food that you have is manna appears on the ground every morning. There's that, there has to be that radical experience of brokenness and dependence before we can then enter into a new type of land, um, Canaan, Manuha, whatever you call it, a place where we do work again, where we, we do sow seeds and reap harvests. Um, so we're no longer, it's important to remember there are those three different spaces um, and that the reason for the wilderness is actually to prepare us for a new type of community. Um, and the reason for the Torah, for Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers and Deuteronomy is to prepare the people 
to live in that new land without reverting to Mitzrayim, but to try to maintain a space where there is rest, where there is care for the poor, care for the foreigner. Um, it's a rad- the, if you read Torah, it's a radical document of, of rest and justice and care for the oppressed and for the marginalized. Um, but if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, you see that it's an incredibly difficult thing to hold to. And if we think we've ever arrived in Manuha, we obviously haven't because it's, it's a constant journey. Um, and for, for our particular community, I think the great challenge is um, not just to avoid Mitzrayim, but to avoid ending up at the opposite end of the spectrum where we're just a kind of club that get together with a shared interest in talking about interesting things, but no real sense of community. Um, And somehow we need to try to find that middle way where we do work, where we do connect, where we do um, bear each other's burdens, where we are productive, but we're productive in a way that flows out of deep connection and love um, and not out of kind of fear and, and drivenness. Um, and it's, yeah, it's an incredible challenge for us and for any community, and it will continue to be. Uh, and I guess we just need to be realistic. If the Bible tells us anything, it's incredibly hard um, to, to stay true to this kind of vision, and it's incredibly easy to fall back into um, busyness and fear-driven ways of doing community. So with that in mind, it's probably a good time to turn to communion, um, this wonderful symbol of, of grace and God's provision uh, because in the end, the reason we have these rituals is to connect week in and week out with the fact that um, we only have life as gift, um, that we only flourish through gratitude and that it's something that we have to return to week in and week out. Um, so what we do for those who are new, um, we just come forward. Um, the first people to the table use their knuckle, any knuckle will do, to crack the crackers into little bits. And then you take a little bit of cracker, take a little cup of juice, and then when everyone who wants to has a cracker and juice, then we uh, eat and drink together. Um, Feel free to not participate in this if you don't want to. Um, As Shane says, feel free just to to participate in it because you don't want to stand out but not believe it at all. That's fine as well. Um, But uh, we'll do that. Come forward, take a cracker and juice if you want, and then when we're all ready, I'll pray and we'll share together.
two things before I pray. Um, just didn't want to disappoint Kerry. She saw that there was a picture of a slinky in my slides, and she was very excited to know what was going to be done with the slinky, and I forgot about it. Um, but the slinky, I remember when I was at uni, um, a guy who was a writer talking about the slinky as a great metaphor for good writing. Um, so good writing is has this perfect place of tension between narrative, plot, and description. Um, so that you, if you have too much description in a book, it's like the slinky is kind of all slack and sloppy. If you have lots of narrative and no description, you stretch the slinky out until it is kind of, can't even spring back. Um, and that best kind of writing kind of holds that perfect tension um, where the slinky hums. And I think it's a beautiful analogy for church as well, um, that if we... If we're too busy, if we're too frantic, we end up having pulling the slinky out to the point where it just it can't, it has no life in it, it doesn't hum at all. Um, but if there's not enough connection, then it's like a slack slinky that doesn't hum either. And that our, what we're shooting for is a humming slinky. So if there's uh, two words that you remember from today, remember the words humming slinky. Um, and speaking of humming slinkies, Annika asked me to say that there's no one on Pacon today. So if um, if you're not rushing off to anything else and you want to learn how the dishwasher works, please feel free to volunteer for that. Uh, let's pray. Loving God, um, help us to be a community that pursues Manuha. We pray that um, the leaders in this community might um, lead by modeling rest, modeling gratitude, modeling um, an attention to joy and an awareness of resentment. And that as a community, we might seek those things as well, seek to take responsibility for our own experience here, seek to check in with ourselves and our own emotional lives, seek time for rest, seek deep connection and that we might always seek that place of being a humming slinky as a community. We thank you for um, this bread and this wine, this cracker and this juice. Thank you for the way it reminds us of our dependence on you and that that dependence is not slavery but is freedom. And as we eat and drink, we do so remembering uh, the example of Jesus. Amen. Amen.